This is Joe Basso with Music Radar, the place for music makers, and I'm sitting with Dan Donegan from the band Disturbed. Dan, how are you? Doing great. Let me ask you about your uh, guitar that you use. You have your own Washburn signature model. Now, I know earlier on you used Gibsons, Les Pauls, and then you used Paul Reed Smith models, but now you're pretty much a uh, Washburn-only user. Mm -hmm. What exactly do you like about those guitars? Um, the fact that, that the guys, uh, I, I've had a relationship with the guys at Washburn because they also deal with Randall amps, and, and I was using Randall for a while. So uh, when they approached me on wanting to build a guitar for me, I really wasn't looking to make a switch um, in the middle of a tour. I wanted, I wanted to talk to them during, between album cycles when I was off the road, and it was very convenient for me because the factory is only an hour from where I live, so it, it gave me the opportunity to be a little bit more hands-on and have some input on on the guitar. I just didn't want somebody to build a guitar and give it to me and expect me to play it. And uh, so I thought the best solution was for me to go take a couple trips up to Washburn and, and go over some design ideas and um, just discuss uh, the weight of, of the guitar and tonality-wise and what we're trying to achieve. And uh, once they built a prototype, it gave me time to take it home and get used to it while I was off the road and that was the biggest uh, that was the easiest way to get me to, to get used to it because like I said I didn't want to be able to do this on tour in the middle of something uh, it, it was just a great opportunity I was very flattered that they would even consider me because uh, I never dreamt that it would get to that point in my in my career I was just you know, a kid playing in a garage band and, and dreamt of being on stage playing music, but I never thought somebody would be uh, uh, asking me to build a guitar for me. It, it just came down to them coming up with the prototype, me getting in the studio with it and try recording with it and, and make sure that it, it was something that I, I definitely wanted to make the switch doing. It seems that you've crossed that final plateau now. Um, you went from being an unknown guitar player in an unknown band to being a guitar player in a big band that's selling records to now being a bona fide guitar hero. How's that feel? Surreal, I guess. I, I just don't know. I never really viewed it that way. I just still can't believe that my job is playing guitar and that... I mean, in this business, it can be very short-lived lifespan for, for most bands, and, and for us to still have a career that's going strong, and we feel like we still have more to offer, and we're, and we're still climbing that ladder, and we're still able to sell tickets and, and albums in the process. We've built a solid fan base that's been loyal to us, and I'm just—it's good to get in a lot of emails or, or meet kids at the meet and greet that say that my playing has been an inspiration to them or, or made them want to pick up a, a guitar in the first place and um, I'm very flattered by that so it's it's we must be doing something right if we're accomplishing that if we can inspire any kid to pick up an in instrument and play is, is a pretty good feeling um, this new album called Indestructible you guys produced it yourselves what was that experience like was it harder than you thought it would be there was definitely probably the more added pressure because I'm sure from the record label end of things and management uh, they want to make sure that we're on the right path um, and we can handle that role. In our minds we were pretty confident that we could. Um, going into it we, we've, we've used Johnny K, uh, our producer on the first three records 
and he also did our demos when we were a local band. And I've known Johnny K for, for years from the neighborhood and growing up, and he was, even back in his high school days too, he was uh, um, just getting into recording and, and doing bands out of his out of his house in his kitchen, right. all set up. I remember stopping by there and just watching some of the bands that were recording there. And we've learned a lot from him over the years. And um, this time around, we went back and we used his studio, in, except for us being the ones producing. And we used uh, his uh, engineer, Tadpole, mm -hmm. is another guy that I've known around locally. And he played in some bands himself. And, and uh, it was just a real comfortable environment. It was a familiar environment because we've been there throughout right. the years. Yeah. So that took off a lot of the pressure of just being a couple thousand miles away from our record label and them giving us the freedom to, to go for it and do it made things a lot easier to, to operate. I wasn't, I wasn't going into a sterile environment, into a studio that I felt like I was punching the clock and, and label people are going to be looking over our shoulder and make sure that we're doing it good enough or to their expectations. But what did you discover about your band or the, the way you work on songs by producing the album yourselves? Um, I think we've always kind of worked the same way. That that end didn't really change because we've always been perfectionists when it comes to writing the songs and doing pre-production. And, and we beat the hell out of every song. Every song gets the same amount of, of attention as whatever the first single may be or whatever. Because at that point, we don't, we don't even know what it may be. So right. going into the studio, I think that we're probably 95% prepared uh, to record, knowing what we want to record and do, and with a little bit of room to experiment and see if something evolves even more. What is the writing demoing process? How do you guys write? Uh, who all writes? Um, do you make elaborate demos? Um, it, it always starts with guitar riffs. It's stuff that I'll be usually dabbling around at home with, occasionally sometimes on the road too in the dressing room. I mean, I'm playing every day before we go on stage. Uh, in the dressing room and just trying to get riffs here and there and I'll just kind of uh, maybe record them a little bit bring a little Pro Tools rig on the road to just record an idea just so I don't uh, uh, forget it and I could come back and, and revisit it when we're off the road and then once I have a couple musical ideas I'll put I'll have Mike our drummer come down and uh, we'll just start jamming them out we'll just start working the beats around some of the riffs and, and putting together a rough structure of what feels good to us musically and then we'll just record a, a quick little one take demo of of it so just very raw guitar bass and drums give it to, to David and see what that sparks out of him you know your, your rhythm section is very fluid um, particularly on this record how do you work with your drummer when you have a riff do you direct him do you work off of him does sometimes changes that he you know is doing affect what that riff might become well i think i i've been with my drummer the longest okay um, the start of the band with david has been since 1996 and i've been with mike our drummer probably uh maybe three or four years before that right and we've just really i mean the whole band has a lot of respect for each other we know what our roles are in the band and so usually going into it if I have a riff and I present it to Mike I have a pretty good idea where I would like to see him go with it and sometimes I may direct him to it but then other times I may want to see what he throws at me mm -hmm. because he may be in a, in a different place with it and then something magical may happen that way as well too so 
I mean, everybody's got their, their freedom to do their thing and throw their idea at that point. But usually if I give a little bit of starting point to try to get my first basic idea out, then things kind of just evolve from there. Let's talk about the new record. The sounds on the opening are war sounds, sounds of war, helicopters, bullets. You don't have to think too hard to figure out what this is, uh, where this is going. Um, I mean, we've always been pretty vocal about it, just being pro-military, but against the war. I mean, nobody wants to, you know, send these boys and girls over there to to uh, fight for a reason that we probably don't all agree that, that they should be there in, in the first place. But the fact that they go there and, and they they're just doing their job, they're doing what's asked of them to do. They don't question it. They, they do it for their country because they love being American. And whether they all agree with it or not, that they, they're committed to their job, and they do it. And we respect the fact that they make the biggest sacrifice anybody can make, and that's risking their lives. They, they, they're away from their families and their children, and they're just, their dedication to it is, is something that uh, should be recognized and, and appreciated. And so over the years, we've always made the, the, the comments, David has always made comments uh, to, to the crowd to let's remember them and show our patriotism and, and get the crowd chatting USA and, and have a pretty big, powerful moment. In the live. But, but at the same time, um, but it's not jingoistic. You're, 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 you're getting the crowd going, saying USA, but, uh, but you did say that you are against this war. Mm-hmm. Do you feel, I mean, you feel comfortable saying that? Yeah. I'm very happy to hear that because yeah. I find all too often artists want to use the backdrop of this war in, in, in their music, but they don't take a stand. Mm-hmm. And to me, if you're going to use the war as a platform of your art, you have an obligation to speak your mind. Mm-hmm. We definitely, we've had a, a many times where troops have come out to our, our shows right. and, and we've met them backstage after a show. At one particular moment, uh, a general sergeant came out to our show with his wife and he had presented us with his bronze star. And uh, at, at first, when one of our crew guys said, you know, gave us a, a warning if he's going to bring a guy back and what he was going to do, we didn't want to accept it. I mean, we didn't earn that. Right. Uh, he, he earned that. And... And we thought we would meet him and, and pay our respects. And, and we were just blown away when he came in with his wife. They was kind of, the whole room was teary-eyed on how serious and how intense uh, he was about insisting that we take his bronze star and how much that we've helped him and, and, his, and his platoon uh, through many battles. And we never realized that we touch people in that, in yeah, that yeah. type of way. And... Uh, you know, we do, we just we respect them, and we and we want to show that in, in some way. And we've, you know, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that you know that was a, a big reason for our opportunity to go to Kuwait and perform for them as well, uh, to show them in person and not just say it over a microphone at a show, you know, in in the Midwest or something. What was that experience like playing in, in Kuwait? Uh, I have to imagine it's way different from. Playing to a, a metal show in the states. Yeah, it, it was it was unbelievable. I mean, definitely our our most memorable moment in our career. I don't I don't see what can top that. When 
it was brought up to us through our agent and management that the MySpace was putting this operation MySpace together, and they approached us immediately. So they must have been familiar with uh, how vocal David has been about um, the soldiers. We said in, immediately, whatever we're doing, we got to drop what we're doing. We got to start getting back to rehearsal and let's go over there and, and do this. And uh, so to go over there, I mean, it was a, it was a little frightening going over there, not really knowing what to expect. And we're, I'm looking at the monitor on the airplane, and we're flying directly over Baghdad, which was pretty shocking because I mm-hmm. thought that maybe we'd go around a little bit. <laughs> but uh, we, we, you know, we flew into Kuwait City, and we and they they drove us to the base and. Uh, just the look on, on their faces and, and uh, appreciation that the troops had of us coming over there to give them a little bit of home, it was un- unbelievable. I mean, we slept in the barracks and we ate in the chow hall and every waking moment we were with them for them. That's what we came to do. And uh, they were just so appreciative of it. For us to finally hit the stage and look out in the crowd and see everybody with a rifle strapped on them and a military vehicle out in the audience with people climbing on it and jumping on it was probably the most powerful visual that we've ever had of being on stage and looking at them. So it, it was it was really intense. Is it a concern for you, however, that because you are pro-military and uh, sing about it in songs, that the message might be misconstrued, though, that pro-military equals pro-war? Uh, yeah, it usually is. Uh, I mean, it, you know, they usually get the wrong message at times. And, and I know many interviews and a lot of stuff that David's had to uh, clarify himself uh, on that stance as well, well too. Um, war should always be the, uh, a last resort. And it, to us, it just doesn't seem like there was really solid reason or solid evidence to send our, you know, men and women over there to do that and, and, and to risk their lives or give their lives for that. And um, like I said, whether they want to be there or not, they, they, they do it because they're, they're committed to their job. And, and that's what we try to make clear. We respect that they, uh, they're on a mission because they're told to do it and, and they don't question it. On all the tracks, you have a solid wall of guitars. How do you usually record your main guitars? Do you do a couple of them, um, or it, that's not one guitar I'm hearing right. throughout? I, I usually blend um, on this album in particular. I my main rhythm tone has always been is usually a combination of uh, my Randall uh, 1086 amp that mm-hmm. I use and a Bogner Ecstasy head, and, and I think with the combination of, of the tone I get from both of those just gives me my main my main sound and with some layering here and there I, I mean I dabble around a lot with different things whether it, whether it's Marshall or Diesel or everything I mean I bring all the toys out for it right, right. and I just try to find what's suitable for that song so certain things are going to have you know thickening parts and the guys in the band kind of joke around when it comes to doing overdub tracks and stuff like that and they call it the Danny Donegan Orchestra because <laughs> I get like a, a, a mad scientist it's probably the most boring thing for the rest of the guys to sit through all that but I mean I'll sit there for hours with every pedal that I have every pedal that the studio has right. every amp that we have and I'll just t- try to tweak everything out until we find s- the tones and the frequencies that sit the best in the mix, you know, and then I'll, I'll just kind of noodle around and, and find 
uh, certain underlying melodies or stuff that's going to enhance those parts more. Now you have your own pedal called the Weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, am I hearing that uh, throughout the, the record? That's that's definitely in a few tracks. Um, that's something that Digitech a couple years ago um, they were putting out a, a signature series of of some of their artists, and they wanted me to be the the first pedal. Uh, which was great because I, I mean I'm in, I'm in great company. Other signature pedals was Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, I think Scott Ian and Brian May, and me. And I think that's the only artist they did in that in that run of signature pedals. So not too I, shabby. Yeah, but I guess I was kind of the guinea pig because I was the first one that, <laughs> that they did that on. But uh, yeah, great company to be in. But they helped me achieve a lot of a lot of the songs I did off the first two albums, The Sickness and Believe. They helped me reduplicate some of those sounds in that pedal because, you know, in, in the studio you can have a million things to do, and then when it comes to playing it live, you got to try to find the easiest and most convenient way to recreate that, those sounds. So that was how that came about. So and I've been using those uh, ever since. So there's definitely some overdub tracks that I've used that pedal on. I've actually used that weapon pedal on some drum tracks as well to create little sections, little drum loops as well that we uh, did on the 10,000 Fist record, the one before this. Uh, we were trying to create a drum loop and it was actually Mike playing these drums and ran them through a little distortion off the weapon right, right. pedal that, yeah. that helped create that. The song Inside the Fire, the riff is, is fantastic. It's one of those curlicue riffs. How many versions of a riff like that will you exhaust until you find the right combination? Because a riff like that, you could play it so many different ways. Yeah, I'm, I, I constantly beat myself over the head over every part. And I mean, maybe a little too much. And, that, and the guys kind of uh, make fun of that too. Uh, because sometimes something may seem good and, and a lot of times I may think it's not good enough. And, and that's kind of the, you know, me just being obsessed with trying to perfect things or make them better I always think that what if I did it this way or that way and can it can it improve and a lot of that is just kind of vibing off each other too once I once the drum parts down and the syncopation if I if the musical you know the foundation of it's laid down if I hear uh, David laying down his vocals and and something may trigger me to want to reapproach it and, and do something slightly different when all the parts are starting to mesh together what is your uh, process uh, when it comes to writing riffs, I mean, are you one of those guys that sits and on the couch in front of the TV and just jams by himself until he, something hits him? A, a lot of times, a majority of the stuff is, yeah, just me by myself. Whether it, at home is usually the best for me because uh, on the road we've always had the intentions of trying to write while we're on the road, but it, there's a lot of distractions out yeah. there, and it's not. It's not easy enough to just say, okay, tomorrow at noon, let's get together, guys, and we're going to write a song. Sometimes it could happen, but it seems almost forced that way. Of right. How could you set a time frame for it? So there's been a lot of times where I'm at home and I'll wake up at you know four in the morning and just go pick up my guitar just in that moment because I feel like playing. And I'll just start playing around for hours, just noodling around. And if there's something uh, that I like, I'll just record it to... Uh, remember what I was doing, and then I'll come back to it and, and try to build off that. Do you ever do you ever write on an acoustic guitar? Um, not so much. Uh, there, there's probably been maybe you know two or three songs where I, I've done something with it acoustically. Um, 
but most of the time I like to plug in and hear it loud and a little bit more powerful and that, that usually inspires me a little bit more when when I f can feel a little bit of you know beef behind the, the chord the solo in um, inside the fire is one of those for lack of a better term guitar hero solos how do you plot a solo like, like that out also do you feel pressure to give kind of an, an Olympian solo at this point? Um, I don't feel pressure. I just, I don't really think about it that, that much. I, I just, the guys have inspired me over the past few years to kind of bring, bring a little bit more of that element to the forefront. And I just kind of do it whatever seems naturally. And a lot of times I try to do my best to be I wanted to make a statement. I wanted to serve a purpose, not just a, a, a chance for me to try to show off for a few seconds. I, I wanted to build like the rest of the song is building. So majority of the time I try to do something that's either influenced by what David's doing vocally or, or what the music's doing for me, uh, what the backing track is doing for me at that point. So I, I try to incorporate some melodic riffs throughout it and then if, and, and build it from there if it's, it doesn't uh, you know if it seems like I could show a little bit of you know faster riffing through it then I just try to make it uh, just build up to a, a point to where when it kicks back into whatever the next course or something that it's that it's lifting to, to a certain point your your own particular guitar style I can't pinpoint who your biggest influence is which is another way saying you have your own identity but I can't really find that one main player in your style. Who would you say that is? Yeah, I don't really think that there ever really was one guy for me. Um, of course, I mean, I was, I was heavily influenced by just, just classic metal bands. And it wasn't really one guy that made me pick up the guitar. It was just the idea of, you know, Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest... Queensryche, Metallica, Pantera—all these bands throughout the years—it was just powerful to me and right, to be right. in the crowd and see them. Um, I, I knew that I, I knew I wanted to play guitar, and all those guitar players influenced me. And I think I, I try to pick a little bit from each one of them, but I definitely didn't stick with one guy and try to cop his style. I was a self-taught player, so anything that I learned was just me trying to just watch other people play and, and pick something up from it. And just over the years of playing with other other guys, other friends locally through high school and after high school and now being with, with the guys in Disturbed, we, we influence each other. So I, I'm glad that I don't sound like I'm stealing somebody else's vibe. And I, I think we've kind of created our own sound here. And I, and I hope that my, my style has kind of... Uh, will evolve and continue to evolve of being my own thing. You mentioned uh, Iron Maiden. It's very interesting that they are now in 2008 as big as they ever were. There was about 10, 15 years there where they they weren't. Why do you, why do you think suddenly now they're a, a huge band again? Because they're a great band and I think maybe that the Hopefully, just maybe that that younger generation is luckily maybe their parents are playing those albums for them, uh, in in reintroducing them to you know the, some of the great metal bands. But they still got it. I mean, I I've seen it's been a, a few years last time I seen Maiden, but I mean Bruce Dickinson still has it, and the band sound sounds great. 
it's like I said earlier. There's not too many bands that can have that kind of a, of a lifespan, right. and unless there's something powerful or, or or a big message or something powerful to say, and, and they're just they're just one of those the few that have been able to make it last this long. I get the feeling you guys have a really serious work ethic. Uh, you know, when I hear a track like Haunted, and you have these precise staccato rhythms. How much do you guys hammer those parts till they're just right? Constantly. I mean, all the way up until minutes before we start tracking them. We, we've, we've changed parts last minute just trying to improve them. We, we're, we're, we try not to overlook anything. So we, even when we're set up recording, in the studio we set up in another room, we'll set up a little electronic V-drum kit and another mobile Pro Tools rig and a guitar rig and everything. So when we're not recording in the room, we're in the other room working out the parts even more and just focusing on each guy's performance, saying, okay, is this ready to be tracked? Is this Are these parts where we want them to be? And we're definitely, at times, overanalyzing things. But, uh, I mean, from every snare hit to every cymbal hit to every note that me and John are playing, we're perfectionists when it comes to that. We just want to... We want to make sure that everybody's performance is, is stepping up with each album and that, uh, it, that the parts are complementing each other. How much do you practice a day? Do you have a kind of routine? Quite a bit. I mean, there's no real set time. I just, I have a guitar next to me. Next, I have my kids and my wife on one side of me in bed and I, and I have my guitar on the other side of me. Right. And it's right, always right in the corner, uh, which within reach of me. I always keep one there because there's many times that my mind is racing in the middle of the night. And I just feel like, you know, getting up, or I get, you know, kicked in the head by one of my kids or something that'll wake me up. And then, uh, you know, uh, but I have a little setup at, at my house too, uh, with with a little Pro Tools rig, just to be able to go downstairs if I want to dig a little deeper into it and play around. Then. Then I'll go there and, and just noodle around and, and record ideas and just try to have a library of stuff to always pull out. Whenever there's those moments of the you know if the well's running dry and and uh, you know I can't force something out, I might just revisit some of the old riffs and see if that uh, sparks anything. With practicing, there's two schools of thought. There's there's guys that are like, well, you know, I I have to be hit by inspiration to pick up the guitar and. For some reason, they can still be amazing. And then there's guys that have kind of a due diligence, like I, I have to play every day or mm -hmm. I'm going to start to get rusty. Well, I don't do it because I have to do it. I do it because it's just become a routine of my life, like yeah. waking up and brushing your teeth and, or eating breakfast or having dinner. The guitar just falls in you know, the, the daily plan of, of how I live. So it's never... it's never been I have to do it, so I have to pick it up. It, it just It's a natural routine of my life. Dan, now we come to the uh, portion of the interview where we are going to ask you some reader questions. Okay. A reader named Their Format says, some of the songs on the first album have become dance floor staples. Do you still feel proud of those songs or do you feel that you've moved on musically? <laughs> um, well, of course we feel like we've moved on musically. I, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of everything we do. It's just like it's just like children to us. I mean, you're going to be, you know, proud of each kid that you have. And to us, we always, with with each album, each time around, we try to impress each other and we try to improve on, on, 
on certain elements of, of those songs that we feel are, are connecting and, and that are strong with us. And it's, it's, it's a challenging thing to do. The longer the career is, the more songs we write, it's always challenging to do something that's still going to sound fresh enough and not rehashed and you know done a million times. So um, into that, I mean, I like that challenge. I like, I like the challenge of expanding and trying new things. And I think that our real fans who have shown how loyal they are to us appreciate the fact that we're, um, even though we're always going to sound, there's going to be things that certain elements that sound like disturbed. I think they appreciate the fact that we're, we're trying to branch out and do certain things to, to keep it fresh for right. everyone. A reader who goes by the name The Dude Five says, Hi Dan, I'm in a very cool metal band. Problem is, I'm in my 30s. Do you think I'm too old to make it? My friends tell me I should hang it up, but I really want to be a pro musician. Should I hang in there? Thanks. I think you should never listen to anybody else. I think <laughs> you got you to gotta do what makes you feel good. I don't think that, for me personally... I've never taken the advice of anybody else. If it's in your heart and in your blood, you do it. I don't know what... And that, to me, is success. Right. It's not how many records you sell. If you're doing what you love to do, then then that's successful. We never... When we got in, into this and, and, and as a local band, we, we were all working pretty good career jobs. We were all making a good living. And one day we decided we need to quit because we need to dedicate ourselves... 100%, 110% to the, to the band and to the music. And that's a big part of the battle. If, he's, if this guy's with, with other guys who aren't dedicated to it, then you, know, then you need to find people that are because they're just going to hold you back. You need right. to be on the same page. I think that's a big part of the battle is if one guy you know, is too committed to his job or he has too many responsibilities and can't put in the time and the effort into it, then you're not going to make it. But if you're all, you know, putting in the same uh, and you're all motivated, um, then you never give up at it. What were you doing as a professional? I, I was a union carpenter. I was building houses. Um, we, Like I said, we all had good career jobs and made good money, and it, that didn't matter to us because... We were miserable doing that for a living. You know? oh, but, but, but was that scary? Because a lot of people probably would say, you're crazy to risk a solid future for being in a band. I, I, I didn't care. <laughs> I didn't care. I mean, I, I, the scary part more so was telling my father that I quit my job to, be, to try to be a musician. You know, so I actually got support from, from my boss when I quit. And he told me, Dan, you can always come back and be a carpenter. If you got a chance to be a musician, go for it. I... I never had the opportunity, like you hear the old stories yeah. of somebody being able to tell the old boss to fuck off or whatever. I didn't have to do that because right. my boss was cool about it. He's like, Dan, if you can get out of this life and go do something <laughs> that you love to do, do it. Because you could always come back and, and build houses. You know, I just got to the point to, to me that I felt like, you know, things need to change. And I knew that, I think if anything, my dad kind of motivated when I was playing growing up of, I'd be in my bedroom playing. He'd he'd say, he'd come into my room and say, you know, nobody's going to be knocking on your door to to find you. You know, kind of motivating me to prove him wrong. I need to right. get off my butt and make a statement if this is what I want to do. And uh, I, I probably never really realized that at the time that that's what what he was doing to me to make me want to prove him wrong. 
But that day came that I, I said, you know what? And so he, he's right, but I also have to tell him, well, I'm quitting my yeah, yeah. my career job, my union job, and I'm going to pursue this because I, I was confident in the guys that I was with and what we were doing. A reader by the name of Bama says, um, it says on Wikipedia that Disturbed have covered songs by Genesis, Tears for Fears, and Faith No More. What's the deal? Genesis don't seem like the sort of band that would influence your music. Well, it was they were... It wasn't done to be uh, from a band that influenced us. We we did it to turn it into one of our songs. And right. I mean, and I, I respect what Genesis has accomplished. And I, you know, I think we were probably more of Peter Gabriel fans when he was with, with Genesis. Right. But but the song, you know, Land of Confusion, see, you know, it had a great message, great lyrics to it. It fit with the content of our our music. And it was another challenge for us to take a song that was more of a pop rock success and to turn it into a disturbed song and put our stamp on it the best we can. And we like doing things that are going to be challenging. It definitely had some good syncopation to it. I thought that by doing Mikey's style of drumming and, and my guitar riffs yeah. and David do, doing what he does vocally with it, that we can turn it into a disturbed song uh, the best we can. I mean, it's just like... Uh, Van Halen doing You Really Got Me I mean a Kink song or, or did anybody question you know Motley Crue doing a Beatles Helter Skelter or well, it, I did. yeah yeah I, that, <laughs> well, that one I, I would question yeah but I mean there's been a number of bands throughout the year I mean that have covered stuff sure. that isn't so rock I mean our, our thought at the time was we didn't really want to pick something that's already heavy and already rock right. and just cover that we wanted to take something and turn it into ours and Go ahead. Some time ago, you were telling me that you were going to do, and, and this reader mentioned it, um, uh, uh, Midlife Crisis by mm -hmm. Faith No More. It's not on the record. Is it a, right. a B-side? We, we tracked it, and, and that, to us, is paying tribute to a band that influenced right. us and that we were fans of. And we tracked the song. It, it turned out great. And, and when it came down to uh, deciding the, the album, I mean, that, was, that one was on the fence, but we had so much... Of the original material that we wanted to uh, shape the album with and, and be heard, and uh, so that could have that could have kind of gone either way at the right, moment. Right. But we decided it came out really good. Let's leave it off and just see if there's something more suitable, so that people it will see the light of day somewhere, okay. whether it's a soundtrack or or bonus track somewhere. And that was the decision made to, for leaving it off and okay. hoping that it'll be heard somewhere down the line. And finally, uh, Imported Carlos presents asks, "How disturbed are you, and does it help your playing?" Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. I guess some some people are, are joking around and asking, "Oh, you know, now that I have a four-year-old daughter and my son was born <laughs> last June, is that going to change the way I'm writing? Am I going to be like writing Barney riffs or right, something?" Right. You know, but. Luckily, that hasn't been the case. Uh, maybe it makes me a little bit more angry and disturbed that I'm stuck watching a lot of these shows <laughs> with them. So I, I find my outlet to take my anger out on, on some of the riffs. And I don't know. I've, uh, I've just always, in some way, been inspired by, by the heavier classic metal bands. Right. And that's just the way we know how to write. And, yeah. and that's it. I, I, don't, I don't see that changing. I mean, I, I couldn't... I mean, I played in another uh, band before Disturbed got signed. I, I played in another band that was more of a little bit bluesier, 70s-influenced mm -hmm. band. And the band was great. 
but I didn't really have much to offer to that band. I right. could play the parts, but as far as writing that type of stuff, it wasn't really what I do. Right. And so when forming Disturbed, I just something that comes more natural to me. It just I, I like writing this style of music. Well, Dan, thank you for spending some time with me. Thanks, Joe. I had a great time. This is uh, Joe Basso from Music Radar, the place for music makers. And I've been speaking with Dan Donegan from the band Disturbed. Again, thank you very much. Thank you, Joe.